I mean, one, he was visionary, but two, he was humble. And watching him navigate that was something that was really new to me because humility in the military oftentimes felt like a sign of weakness. It felt like if you were to say you didn't know or you didn't have everything lined up and didn't have an answer in your back pocket for everything, that you'd be fired or they would just pull the next person in and replace you. It just didn't feel like a place where you could be humble. And watching him lead with executive leaders with that was just transformative to me. And he was a highly successful leader. Hey, this is Cal Walters with the Intentional Leader Podcast. I first want to thank you for joining us here today. Our mission is to help you intentionally lead yourself, inspire others, and make the world a better place. I hope you enjoy this message. Let's go make it count. Hey everyone, I'm Cal and welcome to episode 69 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. It is really early in the morning, but don't worry, I got some coffee and I hope you are ready to learn about leadership. Our goal on this show is to help you become the type of leader that inspires others to be their best. No matter where you are in your leadership journey, whether you're a brand new leader or about to be a leader, whether you're middle management, you've been doing this for a while, or whether you're a senior executive, our goal is to help you get to that next level. And we do that by bringing on amazing guests with leadership experiences and insights that you can go and apply right away. We're really big on giving you actionable immediate practical things you can go do. And today I'm really excited to bring you my conversation with Sarah Roberts. Sarah Roberts is the head of military and veteran affairs at LinkedIn. And you're quickly going to see on this episode that Sarah is an incredibly positive and inspiring person who has a unique view of leadership, blending her time both in the military and now in the private sector. She's an expert at building networks and she's an expert at helping others find opportunity. And on this episode, we cover a lot of ground about what it was like for her to be a female cadet at West Point, a perspective that I did not have. And I learned a lot just hearing that, how her view of leadership has changed since leaving the military, how she was able to build a network with over 128,000 followers. That's right. 128,000 followers on LinkedIn, how she overcame a season of burnout and how she has learned to rise strong and the impact of some of Brene Brown's work on her. This was a really wonderful conversation with a true servant leader. Hey, if you're new to this show, let me give you a little bit of information about what we do. First of all, I want to say thank you for being here. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. It comes out on Tuesday morning. And my hope is that you'll walk away with practical leadership lessons from each session. If you want to make sure you get every podcast episode, just hit that subscribe button. We've got a lot of wonderful content that's coming out over the next several months. So please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. I want to say also a special thank you to all of you that have shared this podcast with your friends, with your network, by word of mouth, whether you're in the U.S. or abroad. Also, thank you to all of you that have taken just a few minutes. Apparently, it only takes about 60 seconds, I'm told, to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I got a five-star review the other day. It said, outstanding, great podcast, particularly enjoyed your recent episode with Lieutenant General Caslin. Keep up the great work, Cal. This is from James Ewing. He's a USMA grad, a West Point grad from class of 96. It looks like he was also a FLEP officer, which means he transitioned from 
uh, a normal military branch to be a judge advocate, a JAG like me, an army lawyer, and also looks like retired as a colonel and is in the reserves and is a assistant U.S. attorney, appellate unit, Northern District of Ohio. Colonel Ewing, thank you so much for the kind review. I really appreciate that. Also got a five-star review from Josue Diaz in Panama. He was listening to episode eight. Wow, Josue, you went back. I appreciate that. He said, I just listened to episode eight and loved every minute of it. Courageous leaders take action and are decisive. Those are some of the qualities of great leaders. Many can explain their vision, but people need to see it as well. Because what moves people isn't just vision, it's vision plus action. I'm looking forward to listening to more. Josue, thank you so much for listening and for leaving a review. Also, a couple more shameless plugs. One, I just want to ask you to become a patron of Intentional Leader. We have a really ambitious vision and goal of impacting people, impacting college students, expanding Intentional Leader, and we can really go a lot further, faster with your support. So thank you to all of you. I'm actually amazed by how many folks have been willing to donate a dollar or five bucks a month just to support us as we're trying to grow really a startup into a more expansive, impact-focused organization. Just go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Cal Walters, and you can give and support us there. Also consider joining the Intentional Leader Lab on Facebook. This is a place to get resources, debate leadership ideas, share struggles and problems. It's really just a place for all leaders to come and grow. It's a private Facebook group, completely free, so go check that out. You can find links to both of those on my website. If you're a leader right now and you're struggling or you're finding the world to be especially complex and fast moving, you're not alone. And that's just the reality that we are all living in right now. I want to encourage you to go check out Higher Echelon. Higher Echelon is a leadership development. It's an organizational performance consulting firm. It provides human capital and technology services to help optimize your performance or your team's performance. Higher Echelon can help prepare your organization to meet the rapidly changing, complex, and often ambiguous requirements of today's world. It helps you do that by developing resilient and adaptive leaders. They'll look at your processes and help you modernize those and enhance your processes. And they'll also look at the technology that you're using and they'll help transform your technology solutions. If you want to learn more about Higher Echelon, just go to higherechelon.com. And there you can connect with Dr. Joe Ross, who's been on the show several times, and the amazing team at Higher Echelon to help you get to that next level. I I really think everyone's going to enjoy this conversation with Sarah Roberts. Shoot me a note. Let me know what you think. Leave a review. I really think she is an inspiring leader who I'm really thankful was willing to invest some time with us today. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Sarah Roberts. All right, Sarah Roberts, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Good morning. And thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited to dive into all of your experience with the military and at LinkedIn. Uh, First question, anytime I have someone that I run into who went to West Point, who, uh, you know, obviously is a female cadet, I'm curious, how was your overall experience at West Point as a female cadet? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it was certainly 
life-changing and changing out of different ways. I had the benefit of being an athlete. So I was ostracized a little bit from sort of the traditional cadet life. I spent most of my time running. I ran cross country and track. And so I was surrounded by some amazing female, strong cadet women who are to this day, my best friends. And I attribute my experience at West Point being fairly positive because of those, um, because of those girls and just how strong and resilient and incredible they were. And, you know, when you hit that two-year mark, you have the option of, do you stay or do you go? And I was seriously considering, you know, maybe this isn't right for me. And it was really because of them that I stayed. And so I think those have been like many, those enduring friendships that, you know, have paid itself forward as we've you know, transition from active duty to the corporate world or whatever your post-military journey is to motherhood. And I think that West Point is the result of so many incredible people and relationships. And even though it was difficult being a female at times, I wouldn't change the experience for anything in the world. It was life-changing and, um, and, and really, for the most part, really positive. And I met some incredible people as a result. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges of being a a female cadet at West Point? I think, I mean, I think for me, I did not come from a military background and I grew up in small town USA. So I think for me personally, I really struggled with feeling like I could fit into this masculine environment and being in a place where I always felt like I was trying to prove myself. And I think that's West Point in general. You're around so many smart, talented, capable people, but there's definitely a masculine persona. I mean, you're at a military academy. They're preparing people for um, leadership in the army. And I think that I really struggled to find my voice. I felt like what leadership meant was to be, um, to be tough, to yell, to, you know, find ways to intimidate folks to follow you sort of this like fear tactic. And maybe it started, uh, from cadet basic training, but I think just sort of the evolution of my experience and time, I realized that that wasn't who I needed to be. Um, I think the other pieces, you're just such a minority. And so I felt like the spotlight was on you in such a higher degree. So any misstep or failure on your part, it felt like that spoke for all women at West Point. And so I always felt like I personally had to tread really lightly uh, to be somebody who didn't like negatively shine light on other women at West Point. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I tried to work really hard. I tried to be, you know, physically fit anytime we had, you know, any type of training or anything that was out in the field. I always really wanted to ensure that I was either performing really well or performing in a way that um, was not creating a negative persona for other women. And then I think that there's this other piece where women were harder on women at West Point. And sometimes I struggled with that. I mean, I take aside the girls that I obviously ran cross country with, because that was like a different dynamic. But when you got back to your company, I felt like because women were harder on women, it maybe created a little bit more competitive nature or a level of distrust. Um, And that was, that was hard for me. I wouldn't say it followed me through the four years, but there were certain touch points. And I think that um, that level of um, interaction was really meant to uplift each other in a way that, 
you know, I'm teaching you that if you do something negative, it shines light, like it impacts all women. That's why we're harder on each other. I hope that that's what it was for. Uh, but at the same time, I did struggle with that a little bit. And I actually found um, it difficult to build some of those relationships outside of just my cross country team with, um, with other women. Cause I think we're just so heads down trying to survive in some ways. Well, thanks for sharing that perspective because that's certainly not a perspective that I have. And it's really, it, I learned several things just hearing you talk through that. Um, how do you think West Point ended up shaping you the most when you think back on some of maybe some of those experiences or any other ones? How do you think it really marked you as a leader and in your current role? I think what I love about West Point is this idea that you can't do it alone. And no matter where you sit, if you're, you know, a pleat going into your freshman tees or you're preparing for that APFT or you are getting ready to pack your rucksack to go to aerosol school, whatever it is, you could always tap on the person next to you to say, hey, can you help me? Or there were people you could reach out to. And I just think this collectiveness of you can't do it alone is so important especially as you transition into the military, because you certainly know that in the military, you cannot do it alone, but in life, you can't do it alone. And so I think it really teaches that West Point is highly competitive. Like I said, there's a lot of smart, brilliant people. You get stack ranked. That certainly creates sort of a level of intensity that may not exist to the same degree in other organizations or schools, but there is sort of this collective community. And when you look back, at least when I look back, I would not have graduated at all if it hadn't been for the amazing people that surrounded me. And so I just think that that's such a fond memory and such a shaping memory um, that I will always carry with me. And then the other piece is resiliency. And West Point is so hard. You're up early, you're up late, you're exhausted. It's go, go, go for four years straight. It is just this immersive experience. And I learned how much more resilient I am or than I ever thought I was capable of. And that still like plays itself forward to where I am even today when I'm going into a hard week or I have a few weeks coupled on top of each other. And I'm like, I I can do this. Like I just one bite at a time. And I think West Point really teaches you that and it really instills it in you. Uh, and I think it's something that has really been super beneficial to me personally. Yeah, I can relate to both of those. And I think it is interesting when you think about West Point, how you do have a lot of very uh, high-performing people, but it does teach you that the value of a team as well. Like you can't do it on your own. And it's maybe counterintuitive. You might think it would just further this and we lean into who I am and what I can do individually, but it actually teaches you that on your own, you, you can only go so far. And uh, certainly the resilience piece as well. So you have a really big job as the head of military and veteran affairs at LinkedIn. I'm curious, how did you, how did you end up at LinkedIn? Yeah. So I would not be at LinkedIn if it weren't for two amazing people who saw something in me. One is Dan Savage, who is also a West Point classmate and had the job before I did. And the other gentleman is Corey Boatwright. And 
I think it goes back to the power of networking. So when I transitioned out of the army in 2010, there weren't a lot of resources for folks in transition, but I ended up in the technology space. And so I had that level of familiarity, building programs uh, for military members in the technology space. And I had gotten burned out. Uh, it's you know high you know high fast paced life, and I had moved into the nonprofit space. So I had this set of experiences, which I I think were unique. What it takes to work in this role, and I had just gone back to work after maternity leave, and I had gotten a LinkedIn in mail message from Corey. I was deeply rooted in Seattle, not planning to leave. And he had just said, hey, let's just have a phone conversation. would love to learn more about your experience. And so, you know, as things unfolded, I ended up at LinkedIn. And what I love about the role is before I had worked predominantly in more talent acquisition focused programs, and this role is social impact focused. And again, I attribute this as you know, having relationships, um, building those relationships over time. And sometimes the doors open and this door happened to open at the right point in time. And I was at the right spot in my life. And I am so grateful because this has probably been one of the best jobs I've ever had. And I love what I do. And I love the chance uh, to give back to the military community in a way that hopefully helps them find opportunity as they start their next journey. I, I want to go, I'm definitely going to come back to what you mentioned about burnout, but I let's get a little bit more into this, your job. What What does your job look like? What, what is your primary focus? And I definitely want to hear too about what you mean by social impact. Yeah, that's a great question. So when we think of how we support communities, we like to look at communities that face barriers. And so in my space, when I think of the military community, there is certain barriers that military members face in this very large, distinct career pivot or transition that they make. So there's the cultural component. Oftentimes there is a geographical component, and then there's an industry component. You're going from one industry and the majority of military folks pivot to a completely different um, area in which they want to pursue their, their career. And so as a result of that, we had done some research two years ago with um, my amazing teammate, who's actually Corey's wife, Melissa, to understand some of the barriers that service members face. And one of them is this idea of a network gap, which I can talk to um, mm-hmm. in a little bit more detail later. But so w- when we started thinking of the military community, you know, there's military spouses, there's military members, but in my role, It's really to connect job seekers facing barriers with opportunities. Leveraging LinkedIn is this really unique marketplace that connects employers and job seekers and the magic sort of happens. And so we think of, you know, how we can evangelize LinkedIn as a platform for good, using tech for good to uplift some of those communities that may exist or run into enhanced barriers that somebody else may not necessarily experience based off of you know, their, their privilege that they may have. And so we're always looking for ways in which we can um, uplift those communities and support them as they start their career journeys. Let's move to networking. Um, how, how do you think about networking? I saw this really cool article that you posted. Uh, I was doing some uh, LinkedIn stalking <laughs> on your profile. I hope that's okay. Um, yes. And I, uh, I I saw this article mm-hmm. and it's 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 great and it talks all about you know the, really the the keys to to effective networking but I think 
when a lot of folks think about networking, they can, it can kind of feel sleazy of like, I'm doing something as kind of this means to an end, I'm using people, but tell us how you've learned to think about networking. You know, I actually felt the exact same way before I came to LinkedIn. I always felt like the only time I was going to use LinkedIn or the only time I was going to reach out to somebody is when I needed something and that didn't always feel right. And then reaching out to ask for help always felt uber vulnerable. And so what I have learned in working at LinkedIn is um, there's a piece in the article that says you can't control when people see opportunities, but you can make sure they think of you first. Mm -hmm. And so I I, I love that piece, but I also love that networking is about relationships and we have relationships and so many different facets of our lives. And thinking about relationships in a way that is mutually beneficial. And so what we oftentimes talk about at LinkedIn and I talk about in our trainings is it's great to use LinkedIn to connect to opportunity, ask for help, but you also want to give back. And so that's where the magic happens in this marketplace. But the other piece is we oftentimes, you know, my network or, you know, my classmates, the people that I'm connected with that prove former companies or other colleagues often sit in a place of privilege where you have the advantage of having a network. So what we know is where you went to school, where you grew up, who you know, those are all really impactful pieces that influence your access to opportunity. And so when we think of our networks, our networks can also have a huge impact, a tremendous impact on people that don't have access to some of those schools or connections or, you know, big brand name companies. And so your willingness to connect with somebody outside of your network in a meaningful way gives them access to those second and third degree connections, which just might be that door that opens up an opportunity for somebody else. And so the way I've had to really reverse how I think about networking is it's not just about me being, you know, connected or in a place where I have connections, but it's also how can I offer my connections and share those connections to others so that they can connect to opportunity using my network in a way that is then beneficial for them. And so I think that, you know, there's so many ways to think about networking for good in that it doesn't just it's not just about you. It can also be about uplifting others as well. I think that's really that's really helpful and certainly different. So it's almost like two ways of, of thinking about networking. One, it's, it's for me. How can I grow my mm-hmm. network for my benefit? Um, and then the other one is how can I use my network to benefit others? And um, yeah. let's, let's talk <laughs> first about the first one of, of, of really growing a network. And obviously the only reason is not <laughs> To benefit you, there, there's it's it is about relationships for sure. Um, I look at so I I looked at your LinkedIn profile. You have almost one hundred and thirty nine thousand followers, which is is insane. And uh, <laughs> I um, so that's a lot a lot of followers. And probably by the time we release this, it'll be more than that. One question is just how how were you able to build that many? followers on LinkedIn? I'm just curious. Yeah. I wish I, I wish I knew the answer. Um, <laughs> Don't be so humble. Don't be I, modest. I'm, I'm asking because we're... <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say what I really tried to think about was sharing content on LinkedIn that was beneficial to the communities that I was supporting. 
And so I was really intentional about also, so I would pick a piece of content, whether it was, you know, job function related, military community related. And then I would try to like weave in a personal story to make it relatable. And so one thing that helps you grow your community on LinkedIn is to be active on LinkedIn, which is something I wasn't always um, doing, even in my prior uh, professions or my prior jobs. And so I just started to be active on LinkedIn, share content, um, like content, engage in other people's content. And it was really that simple. And then I started to grow, uh, grow a following. The other piece that, you know, helps, obviously it helps to work at LinkedIn, um, and have that as well, but engaging in content and sharing content that wasn't just LinkedIn centric. So if the VA had, you know, they were pushing COVID vaccines. I wanted to be able to highlight that and share, you know, Hey, I got my vaccination through the VA and here's how you can do it. So I just started to be really strategic about um, pulling in and highlighting all the great work that our partners were doing, whether they were employer partners that had job opportunities for service members, whether it was a fellowship that a nonprofit was hosting uh, whether it was a networking event. And so I really tried to diversify the type of content, but make sure that it was relevant to the audience that I support and that I was trying to connect with and share opportunities with. So I, I, again, it goes back to sort of that reverse, how you think about networking. It wasn't about me trying to grow my network. It was about me trying to push out as much information in a way that could touch somebody down the road who was fresh in transition, was looking to go to a bunker lab bruise event in Chicago. And so, you know, if it got, if that content got in front of one person that gave them an opportunity that they may not have otherwise seen, that is the way I always think about how I share content on LinkedIn. And certainly I share like personal content as well, but for the mass majority, I try to think of it not as Sarah's LinkedIn profile, but as a LinkedIn, my LinkedIn profile is meant to be um, a way for military community members to see opportunities that I have visibility of. Um, and then the one piece that I think I am always cognizant of. So when I had talked about, we had published this report, we were able to look at networks on LinkedIn. And so the other thing I have the advantage of is I've been out of the military for a period of time where I have many connections who are not military members. But when we look at the data and we talk about networks, military members are composed of mostly military members, while civilian networks have just shy of 1% of military members in their networks. Mm. And so when I think of this network gap that exists between the military community and the non-military community, I see my role as an opportunity to be that bridge. And so, you know, intentionally sharing content that might touch my non-military network that can also give them access or give them visibility into the military side of my network so that we can continue to close that gap that exists. That's really cool. It's like you're reaching into this broad network that you've created to give other people access mm -hmm. to military folks who probably don't see the same stuff and have access to the same folks that you do. What do you, what, so do you recommend to people who are who are trying to grow their network to post content? Like, do you think that's something for everyone? Yes. Uh, okay. So I have a really fun story to share. One of our amazing insights analysts who helped work on this really cool report that we had published in 2019. Um, I love his story because he is 
really into data and data insights. And he had written some work and was publishing it on a blog. And that's actually how a recruiter found him. Uh, It wasn't that he was actively applying for a job. He wasn't even looking at a specific job at LinkedIn, but it was because of this blog that he uh, was working on and sharing information with the data science community on things that he was finding or pieces of work that he was uh, highly passionate about and was sharing. And so Yes, I, I do think that that is uh, super valuable when you start to think of, you know, how to be more intentional in the way you think about your network and connecting to some of those opportunities. But activity, sharing content, um, anytime you do that, it gives you, it helps allow you to have visibility at a broader level versus just a stagnant LinkedIn profile that doesn't have any updates. So like one thing you could do on your LinkedIn profile is, you know, if you wanted to gain greater visibility go on and just like content that you see in your newsfeed. It's a really simple, simple step to try to boost your activity. It's also a spotlight feature in LinkedIn recruiter. So uh, it's a piece that also helps you gain greater visibility if you're active on the platform. Um, so I, I wonder, Sarah, have you had moments maybe early in your time on LinkedIn? Now you're probably not as much of an issue, but did you ever feel anxiety about posting? I mean, because there there's a level of when you when someone is new to LinkedIn, let's say they're transitioning from the military or they're just in the civilian world trying to look for a job, you start to post stuff, share content, and you're putting yourself out there. And I, I imagine a lot of folks maybe want to do that, but there's that anxiety and there's that sense of vulnerability. What what advice would you give to people feeling that? Or maybe how did you overcome that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's super vulnerable. I will be fully transparent. I still get nervous when I post stuff and I reread it several times. I'm like, okay, <laughs> do I have any spelling errors? Does this make sense? Am I saying anything that could be controversial? Um, which I've all had to work through in my own way. And I would say the best piece of advice is take the first step and just do it. The more you do it, the more comfortable you're going to get. But it's like anything in life, anytime you put yourself out there, you have to take a step uh, and just be vulnerable because you're exposing yourself. And in on LinkedIn, because it is a little bit more of a professional context, it can feel like you're putting yourself out there a little bit more. Um, but if I, I'm trying to think of the way that my network is built now, what I love seeing are the vulnerable, authentic posts, whether it's from my teammates or colleagues or just other connections, because I think what it really helps is personalize that. Well, yes, LinkedIn is a professional platform and we all want to you know, be professionals, we're still human and we're still people and we still have passions and interests and those all make us unique individuals. And that's what we want to shine light on when you're thinking about connecting with somebody is you have this unique set of skills and attributes and you want to highlight those. Those are what make you an individual and what make you unique and hopefully what help make you an amazing professional in whatever area you're looking at going into. And then what about when you post something and maybe you don't get the engagement that you hoped for? What what advice would you give to people for that? Yeah, don't give up. Oh my gosh. I there have been times where I've posted, I, I still post stuff and it'll get like two likes. Um, <laughs> so we have all been there, but you have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh so the more you post, one, the more comfortable you'll get to do, doing it, but you'll also start to get an understanding 
of the type of content that your network is engaging in. And the only way you're going to learn that is the more frequently you post. So what I find is that when I post articles, those get less engagement for me personally than if I post something that is personal. So if I take a picture at an event with teammates and tag them and say, great to see you all in Chicago. I loved um, supporting this event, supporting whatever. And if I post that authentic content, it gets way more engagement and traction on the platform than if I'm like regurgitating content. If you share content that is in your own, it gets less traction. Um, So you'll start to like, the only way you're going to learn that is if you're being thoughtful about practicing. It's like a skill you have to practice and you'll start to figure out what resonates with your network and the pieces of content that are worth um, weaving in in a more regular basis. It's just like building a content calendar. If you sit in social media and you know you build a content calendar, I start to think about how to do the same thing and I save what I want to share and the things I want to amplify. And so you'll just get better at it the more you do it. And, but it is a skill you have to exercise and you have to practice at it because it for not for everybody, it doesn't come natural for everybody. And it certainly didn't come natural for me at first. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. I can certainly relate to that feeling of insecurity when you, when you, hit, when you hit post, it is a feeling and uh, you know, but I do, I agree. It's, it's good just to, to share because you have something to add a value, even if it's highlighting someone else who did something great, if it's a story, if it's a quote. Uh, I, and I, I have noticed the more active I am, the more engagement I get. And it's cool to see. I've also been surprised by this, how you'll, you never know what, a, what door a relationship is going to open for you. So just mm-hmm. having, being open to having relationships and communicating with people and engaging. And next thing you know, this person knows this person and they can introduce you to that. So uh, don't underestimate the value, even just one relationship that you're building on LinkedIn. So Sarah, I want to do something a little vulnerable here. I'm going to share my LinkedIn profile and get you just to, just to give me a little coaching on this. Um, just to maybe, maybe people can use my profile as an example of what to do or what not to do, but what, what, if anything stands out to you, what, what are some things that you would tell people to, uh, to focus on when they're trying to set up their LinkedIn profile? Yeah. So I did look at yours. Yours is great. You actually have a very strong LinkedIn profile. Um, So the five things that I always tell folks to focus on are photo. So you have a photo, you have a background photo. Those are super easy things that you can do that already gets you greater visibility. Uh, The second is that headline. So you have that headline, you have uh, the key pieces of information that you want people to see about you, which is great. So intentional leader podcast, army lawyer, former infantry officer, those are all pieces that help tell a story, start to tell that story of who you are and then what you talk about with your hashtags. So that right there in and of itself is already like an amazing start to building that LinkedIn profile. And then if you scroll down a little bit, on your profile. So you can see, so your dashboard is awesome because your dashboard is going to give you insight into a lot of different um, pieces of information around you. But the featured, oftentimes people overlook the importance of featured, um, this featured space where you can highlight or basically draw attention to some of the key things that you want your network to know about you. So when I looked at yours, the first thing I saw, you know, is your podcast that's featured right there. And so 
I think that being really intentional about the pieces you want to put there is really, really helpful. I, on my personal one, I have some articles I've written other um, folks that, you know, sit in different areas might, you know, highlight maybe white papers they've written research, different projects they're working on, but this is a great way for your network and a snapshot to gain information about you without having to scroll through your whole profile. Um, the other piece that is really helpful for people to think about is the about. And so the only piece of feedback I really have on yours is your about, if you <laughs> get right there. So there isn't a whole lot of information in there. And so your about is really the opportunity you have to weave in more storytelling about who you are. Okay. And so I always recommend that your when you think of your resume, it's really intended for like one employer or a subset of jobs. When you think about your LinkedIn profile, it's open for everybody to see or like learn more about you. So this is a chance for you to weave in some of that information that helps humanize who you are as a person, what you're passionate about, but also it's a great way for people to start to connect with you without having to scroll down and look at your LinkedIn profile as if it were just a resume. Mm, that's um, a good point. That makes sense because it is kind of cumbersome to go down here. And for those that are just listening on audio, I'm looking at my experience. Um, I can see how that would be cumbersome and it would be better to kind of, like you said, tell the story up here. Okay. That's helpful. Um, one question just to follow up, Sarah, on the headline. It, do you have any recommendations? Because I see some folks who in their headline will say things like, I help people become better leaders or I, you know, they're really focused on maybe what they do, the value that they add. Um, and then I see some folks who put their job title. For me, I, I'm really trying to show people that I have a podcast and I also am a, an army lawyer. Any thoughts on that? Is there any, is there any recommended way to structure your headline? Yeah, I wouldn't say there is certainly a black and white approach. I think it's important to create a LinkedIn profile that is unique to you and the industry you're trying to go into or the following you're trying to build. So you have to be really thoughtful about what resonates with you and sort of what your goals are with your LinkedIn profile. I personally, I like the way that you have your headline built out in, to a greater degree um, than if it says, I'm a leader, I transform teams. Because if I'm somebody that is immediate, like when I look at your LinkedIn profile, this is the first piece that I'm going to see. I'm going to see your name. I'm going to see your picture. And I'm going to see you have this podcast. But then I'm also going to look at your headline. And your headline is really that like two to three second opportunity that an employer or a recruiter or somebody in your network sees about you. So I lean more towards this format and being really thoughtful about customizing the keywords that kind of summarize who you are as a person and who you are as a professional. Um, again, there is no hard line, black or white way to approach this. It's just sort of what I personally like to see when I'm looking at profiles. But again, you can customize it. It's your profile based off of what is best for you and sort of what your end goal is. Okay, great. Well, thanks for thanks for coaching me on that. And that's a good segue. So I looked at your headline. And one of the things that you talk about is uh, being a storyteller, which I really thought was cool that you had that in there. Um, and then you also had that you were a dare to lead facilitator. That's that's somewhere in your profile. So I want to talk to you about leadership because I, I really think you have a valuable perspective 
with your military experience and now as much time as you've spent in the private sector. So I'm, I'm just curious. Well, let me first ask kind of how do you yeah. think about leadership? Like when you, when you think about the way Sarah Roberts uh, defines leadership, how, how, would you, how would you structure that? Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. I would say for me, it's been, it's been a journey. When I first started my career and in the military, I certainly had an idea of what I thought leadership was like. Uh, over the course of my career, the, the key defining moments of leadership have been the people who have like no military affiliation and really debunk what I thought of when I thought of a leader. So trust, building trust, somebody that takes an interest in me, somebody that I can lean into and, you know, I, I can like say they're going to deliver on what they say they're going to deliver on. Humility. I really appreciate when um, a leader says, I don't know, but I'll find out or, you know, is humble enough to really lead with that. I think that is um, really important. I think relationship building is super important. Somebody that can connect the dots. The other piece that is really important for me is somebody who's aspirational and who has a vision that I can get behind, that I believe in, that I can follow and uh, knows how to plug into the different skill sets that the team has in order to align and evangelize with that mission. So those are some of the things that like immediately speak to me. And again, it's been a journey just in terms of the different leaders that I've worked for. And I've learned just as much from leaders that I didn't necessarily align with or feel like were as strong visionary leaders as I did leaders that I was like, oh my gosh, I would follow you in a heartbeat. Mm. Um, because I think there's something to be learned from everybody. Tell us about a leader who's done some of those things well, because right? I, I really think it's it's important for the folks that are listening to get some practical takeaways. And sometimes they learn best from stories or from examples. Yes. So who are some people that you think have really done some of those things? Trust, humility, uh, vision casting really well. Oh, absolutely. So there was a person that I worked with at Microsoft when I um, was new there building programs. And this person, his name is Sean Kelly, and he is a phenomenal leader. And what I loved is when he was visionary. So I think always pushing the limits on what was possible and not afraid to ask. The other piece that I really appreciated is I was sort of at a tough point in my, in my career. I wasn't sure I wanted to stay in the technology space. It was feeling really like highly competitive, a little cutthroat for my liking. And he, I, I was sitting in a headcount on a different team. And so basically he made this pitch based off of, he, he's a military person as well, but he made this pitch to move my headcount into this org to work on mili building military programs under him, which is not what I was doing in my previous role. And then, you know, just watching the way that he interacted with others and with teammates and senior leaders, I mean, one, he was visionary, but two, he was humble. And watching him navigate that was something that was really new to me because humility in the military oftentimes felt like a sign of weakness. It felt like if you were to say you didn't know or you didn't have everything lined up and didn't have an answer in your back pocket for everything, that you'd be fired or they would just pull the next person in and replace you. It just didn't feel like a place where you could be humble. And watching him lead with executive leaders with that was just transformative to me. And he was a highly successful leader. And then the other piece is I was a brand new mom. I was coming back from 
maternity leave. That's such a like a raw emotional time to, to navigate. And he cared about me and, you know, just sort of let me set the pace to ease back in, took the time to ask me how I was doing. Those were all things like they were such small steps, but what they did to impact me as a person and feel more loyal to him as a leader and to the work I was doing and the company really changed how I want to lead, how I want to be a leader and what I think defines leadership. And I've seen that even just sort of in this post-COVID world with some of the amazing leaders that I've had the chance to interact with at LinkedIn. And, you know, it's really going a step above and caring about people and taking the time to understand their unique needs and knowing when you don't know the answer and saying and admitting that, but then also, you know, getting everybody towards like this common vision. And for us, it's how do we create economic opportunity for, you know, the global workforce? And so those are all things that have been really deeply impactful to me and the leader that I hope I can be um, as I continue to progress in my profession as well. And you said his name was Sean. Yes, Sean Kelly. And um, you can find him on LinkedIn. He worked in the talent acquisition space, but just an amazing human being Mm -hmm. and a wonderful, wonderful person. Tell us a little bit more about the vision. Like, What were some of the things he would do to communicate vision? And then also you mentioned like the humility. What what, kind of take us in the room a little bit? Like, What were some specific things he would do? So I'm not sure if you're familiar with Microsoft's Microsoft Software and Systems Academy. So historically, uh, Microsoft said there were military people that worked there, but traditionally it's a difficult company to be hired into, especially if you have a military background, which, you know, we can go into sort of the whole host of reasons why we think that is, but his vision was, you know, we have this amazing learning content. We have this amazing company and all of these jobs And yet we are hiring in college graduates who don't have any real work experience, maybe an internship under their belt. They do have a four-year degree into these entry-level jobs. And yet we're missing out on this plethora of talented, smart, experienced military members who may not have the tech, the immediate technical acumen, but they have all of this work-life experience and skills that would make them competitive for these entry-level jobs. Why aren't we diversifying our talent pipeline? And so he pitched this idea on how to create this program where we could pipeline military members into Microsoft, give them some technical training, and they could be competitive with some of those entry-level college graduate roles for some unique roles at Microsoft. So there was the funding, there was who does the who does the academic credentialing? Uh, how do we build this program? How do we build the relationships on base? This was like before SkillsBridge existed. And it was how do we take this like visionary idea and then start to build the steps to execute on it? And there were so many hurdles and obstacles along the way trying to sell it internally because, you know hiring managers just didn't believe in it. Mm -hmm. And now it is one of the most well-renowned technical Mm -hmm. upskilling programs across the military space. And it started with this idea. And that's where my headcount came from. And I had the privilege on working with him to help build this program. 
And just watching him say, I don't know how, where we're going to hire these people. I don't know like <laughs> where we're going to um, get in front of the base commander to pipeline mm. these folks into the technical program. But it was that level of community and just mm. like scrappy, like figure it outness that I think was really inspirational. Mm. And it's anything entrepreneurial that, you yeah. know, makes you gritty and resilient. And so just seeing him not give up and continue to push his vision and get all of us behind working on different components to make it successful was um, really rewarding and amazing. It was transformative for my career to, to see somebody do that and then aspire to be like that so that I can continue to lead like that as well. Hopefully at some point, as I continue to you know think about the role that I want to have in my space. So when a leader like that says something like, I don't know how to do this, I don't know how we're going to do this, how did the team react to that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think coming from the military, at first, I was like, oh, this isn't going to go across very well. But then it was just sort of this, that is a really great question. Mm -hmm. You're probing into an area that I hadn't clearly thought out, but we're going to go figure it out. And so I think because of that, it really inspired our team to problem solve, to be innovative, and then to come up with a come up with a solution. And I think it's the same in like the way I approach work today. If there's something I don't know, what it identifies is that yeah, there's a gap, there's a problem, and rather than it being like something that is coined as negative. It now offers me and the team and whoever the opportunity to think about maybe this gap in a project or program or something that we were working on moving forward. And so the way I think of it is it's a feedback loop mm -hmm. and having that opportunity helps you identify areas in which you need to go deeper. And so that's what it did for me and watching you know, him go to senior leaders and say, I don't know, but let me get back to you. And then watch the wheels and the magic happen as we got to innovate and riff and, you know, brainstorm and then come back with a solution, a recommended solution or several recommended solutions, I think was what made it so fun and so energizing because we weren't confined to working within a box. I love that. There's so much I love about that. I, I think it shows you that when a leader asks questions, when they demonstrate, like, I don't know the answer to this with a really good team, people are going to rally around that and they're going to actually want to help you solve the problem uh, as opposed to the leader who just acts like they know everything. They're the smartest person in the room. And then there's not, there's no energy around trying to solve problems because, well, the leader's already got it figured out, but it also brings the folks on the team into that problem solving process. And it gives them that feeling of, of buy-in. Uh, I was actually listening to James Clear this morning talk about the you know the beauty of questions are really two things. One, it demonstrates curiosity. Second, it also demonstrates a desire to get it right. And if you're not willing to ask the questions, then you really maybe you don't care about getting it right. And so I think that's that's really cool. Um, real quick on Dare to Lead, the book. What what about that book resonated most with you, or what about the even the facilitator program that you went through? What what about that resonated most with you? Yeah, it I mean it changed the way I think of myself and my just like work in general. It was a life-changing experience. Um I think and I'll use the military metaphor. She actually uses this in the book, so this is not my own. But I think of in the military when you 
you know, deploy, you get ready to go out on a mission or a patrol, you put on all your gear, you put on your armor, you put on your helmet, you, you know, you make sure all of your equipment is good to go. You have all of the essentials, but you're basically like covering yourself up with this armor. And so the metaphor that she used is that in order to really be seen is and be vulnerable and start to connect with people in a meaningful way, you have to be intentional about removing that armor. And so the armor is really a mechanism that we use all the time as humans and individuals to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. So you think of, you know, the conversations of like showing up to work. Like I used to hide that I was a veteran. I didn't want people to judge me based off of the stereotype that exists when I'm working in the tech space um, with people that oftentimes don't have that experience or knowledge of that experience. And so I was intentionally putting on this armor and trying to assimilate or fit in and covering up a part of my identity or being a working mom. Like there's stereotypes that exist with that and, you know, keeping my personal life very separate. So those are just like personal examples. But what I loved so much about the book is that in order to really be really to plug in and tap into your creativeness, to build meaningful relationships with others you have to remove that armor and show up and be fully seen for who you are, what you believe and the values that you lead with. And I was working at um, a nonprofit called Team Red, White and Blue. And Brene had basically given our team a, a few slots to go through this training. And so I showed up, I'm like, yeah, this is going to be great leadership training, but not realizing it was going to be personally transformative training. And so part of the training is I can deliver the content, um, having gone through that. And I think that it's such a unique way to think about relationships and leadership in the construct of like the professional world, because again, like in the military vulnerability is weakness, but it also is in the corporate world. And so I think that's why Sean as a leader was so transformative for me to work for, but then also going through the facilitating and the training with other military members who are on my team and watching each of us start to peel back this armor that we all wear just to inherently to protect ourselves um, really opened my eyes on what it means to connect with people and show up and be seen for who you are, which I think societally we have a lot of work to do on. Yeah. Well, I love all that. I love Brene's work. And, uh, you know, she, she obviously talks a lot about vulnerability and courage. And I think, so first, I think a lot of leaders probably should become more vulnerable. So that that's a starting point, but there also might be some folks out there that are thinking, okay, well, it's probably, and Brene has said this before, it's not vulnerability for vulnerability's sake. There, there also maybe should be some some boundaries associated with the vulnerability. So any, how do you think about being vulnerable as a leader and the appropriate boundaries around that? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll share a, I'll share a vulnerable story um, of an experience that actually just happened. So I had worked with an amazing team of LinkedIn members to publish our women veteran opportunity report. And it was really personal for me because the data is, there's some great data in there, but there's also some really hard data to look at, to look at. And it's, you know, women like veterans what? are in, um, so there's like this intersectional component. So you have, you know, women already face barriers in the workplace and veterans face barriers in the workplace. But when you couple those together, we coined that term as intersectionality. So you have two identities coupled together. So you face, you know, enhanced barriers. 
And so some of the barriers that women face are access to leadership roles. So there's fewer women veterans in leadership roles post-military. They go into very gendered job functions. So you might have a woman who was a military police officer, like whatever, in the military or function, MOS, and now she's working as an admin or a personal assistant or a nurse. So our data shows us that women veterans go into more gender stereotyped roles. Um, the other piece that we see is that women veterans study technical degrees at a higher rate, and yet they're not going into technical degrees or functions. Um, and then the other piece is they drop out at a higher degree at every function of the recruiting funnel. So they have less outreach, they're recruited for fewer jobs, they receive fewer in-mails. And so all of those pieces, you know, in terms of accessing opportunity, are impactful for women veterans. And so it was personal for me. I'm a woman veteran. I, I mean, granted, I'm working in the technology space and you know, I, I feel like I have um, a great career. I could relate to all of those barriers at different points in my time, especially in the transition and trying to articulate that I do have experience. I am value. I deserve a seat at the table. And so I had sent a message to my team the report launched, we had written an article, and I had sent a note to my team just basically airing why I was so passionate about this report and why I felt so personally tied to it. And I and I used my like West Point classmates as an example. I was like, every time we've had to like fight for a seat at the table, or every time you pulled into the Home Depot parking spot and you somebody's like, you didn't serve in the military because of all of those perceptions that wow. exist. It just felt really deeply personal. And so I sent this email to my team and I, I after I hit send, I was like, vulnerability hangover, I'm going to be fired. Like I should have never aired this. And I got such a positive message back from everybody on my team that was like, thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing that, like really appreciated your courage. And that's just like one example, right? Like there's, we probably all have different stories, but it just really reiterated that I didn't feel like I should share a piece of my story with my team in the technology space, which already feels a little, you know, di difficult anyway. And mm -hmm. yet I did. And the tone in which I was met back with was really positive. And so I think it really helps them have a snapshot into who I am, but it also helped me feel more at ease and sharing more about who I am with them so that we can continue better building better relationships, super long-winded, but Hopefully that. Helps. No, I think that's a, I think that's a great example of of vulnerability in the right context. How that is appropriate, um, and and how it was related to the article. It was it allowed you to show your authentic self. I mean, this is this is how I feel about this. Um, I think the example that Brene gives of boundaries is like, hey, if you're the CEO and you know, or no, if you're the C, let's say the CFO, and you know, you're you have no idea what's going on with the books. You probably shouldn't like send out an email to all of the shareholders. Like that's an example of like there maybe, but maybe you should go tell the CEO, uh, be vulnerable about where you are. So I think I think context is important, but that seems like a very appropriate context where you shared that, and it also helps. It, it I think I remember Patrick Lencioni was saying, especially during COVID, it's it was important to be exceedingly human as a leader, and I think that's an example of just being human. Uh, as, as a leader. And I think that's great. Let me, so I want to try to do something real quick. I want to try to play this video. It's another Brene Brown video. This is, uh, I actually found this uh, on your LinkedIn profile. And it's so good that I, I wanted to, to try to put it in here and then have you talk a little bit about just 
how this resonates with you. Manifesto of the Brave and Brokenhearted. There is no greater threat to the critics and cynics and fearmongers than those of us who are willing to fall because we've learned how to rise. With skinned knees and bruised hearts, we choose owning our stories of struggle over hiding, over hustling, over pretending. When we deny our stories, they define us. When we run from struggle, we are never free. So we turn toward truth and look it in the eye. We will not be characters in our stories, not villains, not victims, not even heroes. We are the authors of our lives. We write our own daring endings. We craft love from heartbreak, compassion from shame, grace from disappointment, courage from failure. Showing up is our power. Story is our way home. Truth is our song. We are the brave and brokenhearted. We are rising strong. I love that video for a lot of reasons, but I'm just curious, Sarah, for you, what about that resonates most with you? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's like such a good video. It's so hard to, it's so hard to come up with, um, <laughs> come up with something after watching it. Cause she does such an incredible job. Um, yeah. So I think what I love about that video is we all go through tough stuff. Um, we all have obstacles. We all have villains. We all have like these things that hold us back and it's really just us holding us back. Um, so I think of, you know, I think of like my time in the military and I just, I, I, I felt like a misfit. I didn't feel like I could be a strong leader, you know, being a woman, you know, I'm, I'm nicer. I wasn't like that strong, you know, kind of typical polished, um, get in front of rah, rah person. And so I think that as I transitioned out, I sort of had that on my shoulders, especially because it was dual military. And so being married to somebody that was like that. Um, and then I think of all of the different things and like struggles, both personally and professionally that, you know, I've had to endure, whether it was, you know, something with my family or, you know, I remember when I first quit my first job and I couldn't find anything for eight months like those all felt like huge failures that you wear that burden on your shoulders. And I think what I love about that video is it's permission to be free. Hmm. It's like this, it's sort of the way that she tells it is yes, that's part of your story. Own it, be proud of it, like lean into it because when you own it it unlocks your potential and it unlocks your ability to be creative and be free and be who you are and take those steps to write the story that is important and unique for you versus writing the story that is for others or for somebody else. I felt like I was writing my story for other people to prove my sense of self-worth. And so part of the transformation and attending the training that I went to is I felt like I walked away and I could finally 
write the story for myself without feeling like I need to prove myself to earn external validation from others, which ultimately I felt like was just holding me back in my life in general in lots of different ways. And so it's just sort of this unlocking and it was just a wonderful, very hard experience (laughs) to go through, but I recommend it for anybody that can or to read the books, because I think that those are just so um, impactful. I want to go back to what you said earlier about a season where you felt burnt out. Uh, what what were some of the things you think that really led to feeling burnt out at that moment? Yeah, hustling. I was hustling. I was hustling to prove my sense of worth. And it goes back to like one of the strengths that I learned at West Point in the military was resilience. But in learning resilience, resilience doesn't have to be an end state. Like you can't live your life trying to be resilient all the time. And I had gone through a lot of life change, like transition, moved across the world, just come back from deployment. You know, there was like all these different things that just, I felt like were really difficult. I moved into mom and dad's basement to try and find a job. And I think that I hustled. And where when I was hired, I was hired a bunch amongst a bunch of very young college grads. And I didn't, I couldn't connect because I had such a different subset of experiences. And I always say I was like the awkward person that was showing up to work at 7:30 when all the college, you know, <laughs> hires were showing up around 9:15. Um, but I just hustled and I worked so hard because I thought that that's what it took to get ahead. And maybe to some degree it does, but it came at the expense of my relationships, my sense of self, my own health, um, quality of life. And I think I hit a wall. And I think had I gone through the Bernay training or had insight into that earlier, I would have been self-reflective enough to realize what was happening. But it took me almost hitting the, I was past the point of no return and just said, I have to quit. Like there's nothing that I could do or that could happen that is going to help me gain what I need back in order to be a functional professional. Um, but had I taken some of those steps early on over the course of that experience, I wouldn't have hit that wall. And so that's why I think that work or this work is so impactful because you it, it really forces you to take pause of why you're hustling um, or why you're behaving in a certain way before you get to that point where you're, you know, it's almost too late. I mean, that, that is such a great insight. The idea that resilience is really important for sure, but it doesn't mean that you always have to be in a state of resilience. It's almost as if we have this idea that something hard equals something good. And therefore I'm always have to be in a state of hard um, I'm not. I'm not sure if you've read Greg McEwen's new book, Effortless, but he talks a little bit about that, and it, it kind of resonated with me as someone like you from West Point, who, you know, you, there's a lot of pride that comes with mm-hmm. just really being gritty and hustling and just getting it done. Um, but maybe there's a better way, um, and I think that's really. And I appreciate you sharing that, Sarah, because it's easy to look at you and your life. And all that you've accomplished in your current position and your 139,000 followers and think that you have never struggled. And so I appreciate you being willing to share some seasons of struggle and how you even have to rise strong and have to learn how to own parts of your story. And I just think that's so refreshing 
And I appreciate you being willing to, to share that with us. I want to finish up with a quick lightning round of questions. Uh, and the first one is, uh, what is one habit, routine, or ritual that for you has made the biggest positive difference? So I'm going to steal this from somebody. I don't remember which naval officer shared this or where it came from, but I make my bed every day and I make my kids make their beds. And I don't know what it is, but there is something about that function that like starts my day and it starts my day for everybody. Um, It's like, it's time to get going. It's Monday. Like, I don't know. So I would say making my bed and tidying up and then I feel great and I can unleash my creative endeavors. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I think that was Admiral McRaven. And he said, you know, just the idea that, Hey, worst case scenario, you come back at the end of the day, if nothing else went right, you have a made bed and I, yes. Hey, and kudos to you for getting your kids to make their bed. That's amazing. Uh, what, so this is another question. What it's for you, what is the most important quality in a leader? Yeah, I think I had shared, um, this one earlier, but trust, If you don't have trust in the individual, both personally and in their capabilities, it's really hard to, I I feel like it's hard to show up for work and it's hard to work for that individual. I think so much of like, at least in my, I'll use my professional experience. So much of my experience has been shaped by who I worked for. And you, I feel like I can do anything. I'm grossly <laughs> generalizing. I can do anything if I work for somebody that I believe in and who I trust. Mm. Yeah. And so this is one. So imagine you're speaking to a group of college students, senior, senior college students who are about to graduate. What would be some of the biggest pieces of advice you would give to them? Yeah, I would say write your own story. I, I don't know how your transition experience experience, like what that's been like. But I think for me, I always had this idea of what I thought I should be based off of what other people had accomplished. And I spent a lot of my life hustling to compare myself to others. And the sooner you can let go of that and just write your own story and be who you are and pursue what you care about and what you're passionate about, uh, chances are you'll, you know, experience more long-term personal fulfillment than hustling to try and compare yourself to somebody else's journey because only you can write your own path to success. And I wish I had leaned into that earlier in my career. I love that. And I think we live in a society where it's so easy to compare with social media and the internet and it, but it, man, it steals our joy so much. And there's, there's this beauty in that too. When you start to own your own story, then, then you go from a place of maybe being envious of other people to being able to celebrate other people to having a kind of an abundance mindset that, Hey, you can be successful. I can be successful. We can both be great contributors to society and your success doesn't take away from from mine. So I think that's really great. I think college students would benefit from that. What is your, so as a mom of three kiddos, what is your top parenting advice? Oh my gosh. Um, just throw out anything. I, I would just say embrace imperfections. Um, I think some of my most beautiful, wonderful moments are you know, when I've got spit up on my shoulder, I've got a crying child and it skins me and, you know, we're eating popsicles. I just, <laughs> I think that you just have to embrace the chaos and just roll with it because 
anything you had planned will soon be unplanned. And that's where the magic happens. <laughs> Amen to that. All right. Last question for you. What is your top marriage or relationship advice? Oh man, this is a, this is a tough one. Cause I feel like I'm in the fighting years, but I would say taking the time to invest in each other's unique needs. I think, you know, with work and kids and all of the other demands on our lives, it's really easy to just get transactional. Like you go do this, I'll go do this. We'll divide and conquer and never coming back to be intentional about making that connection to what the other person's needs are, because ultimately that's, you know, why you're in a relationship is to care for and support each other. And so I think for me, just where I am at in life, being really thoughtful about making time and space for that um, during this juncture of my life is something that I still need to work on, but I think is really important. That is wise. And I, I know why my wife and I have found we have to plan it because it doesn't just inevitably happen. So it's good to just Hopefully. put it on the calendar, figure mm-hmm. out a weekend, a, a week, even a night, a, a lunch, something, mm-hmm. plan it out and you'll be happy that you did. Well, Sarah, anything else you'd like to share with the leaders out there that we didn't get to? Oh my gosh. No, this was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for inviting me and creating the space for me to to share a little more. I just, I really appreciated the time and you're a wonderful podcaster. So this was great to be a part of. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. And if people, if people want to find you, where's the best place to find you? They can find me on LinkedIn, Sarah Roberts (laughs) at LinkedIn. Um, Yeah. Feel free to reach out. Happy to connect. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sarah. There were so many wonderful takeaways. One, it was a reminder that we each experience things differently. Just hearing her talk through her experience at West Point, not at all my experience as a white male going through that, but there are perspectives that are so valuable for us to get. And so I think that was really healthy for me to hear about that experience for Sarah. Totally different from mine again but something that now I can tuck away and know that that might be the experience of other people in an organization that I'm a part of that I may have nothing or that I may, that I may know nothing about. Also, I loved what she said about using your network, growing your network, posting on LinkedIn. I really encourage you to go and create a LinkedIn profile if you haven't done that. Also, some of those wonderful insights about leadership, about not feeling the need to wear the armor, about leaning into who you are as a leader, your own authentic leadership style. And I think it's important to know that you don't have to always be right as a leader, but you just should be real. And that is, that's not a license to just be a jerk. It's not a license to not be competent. It's not a license to do things just because you feel like them. There are certain principles that we should all live by as leaders but you don't have to fit a certain specific mold of someone else. You can take some someone else's skills and their talents and their strengths and make them uniquely yours. Sarah felt that pressure to be this hard command and control type leader from what she saw in the military, but then she learned, I don't necessarily have to be that. I also love the example of the leader who was willing to cast a vision, but also simultaneously acknowledge they didn't have the answers to everything. They were willing to open up to the team to get to the solutions they needed to get to, to create and and accomplish that vision. Some wonderful insights. Hey, let me know what you thought. I hope you enjoyed this. What a wonderful reminder from Sarah to just really go today and really live intentionally to impact people, to help others get into a place that's better, that really makes their life better. 
So let me know what you think. I hope you go and make it a wonderful week. Go make an impact on the people that are right there in your circle and your sphere of influence. I appreciate you. Remember, life is short, so let's go make it count today.